Uh, I've probably learned more from Brad Jerzak in the last year than anybody. And I've worn out his stuff on YouTube and his books. And in fact, I've got his books over there. Evan, can you hand me those books just to... Um, I can't find your other one. God told me so or whatever the kids one. I've got it here somewhere. Children, can you hear me? What do you need? Oh, I thought you were looking at me. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know what I love is uh, uh, what, what, you know, we've shared a lot of this over this last year, just really getting into um, what did, what did the, the, the people who compiled the Bible, who actually canonized the Bible, what did they believe? And what did they share? And, and a lot of times it's radically different than what you and I were taught growing up. And, uh, and I love the fact, you know, Brad's got all these digits after his name, titles and everything else, but he's like, I just want to be Brad. And I've, I've, I'll probably call him Mr. Brad tonight just because my kids, I'm like, well, we call him Mr. Brad and Mrs. So-and-so. And but I kept calling him Mr. Brad. He goes, I'd do anything for you. Just call me Brad. <laughs> so, <laughs> so forgive me if I, if I blow it. But uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, somebody calls me Pastor Mike. I go, okay, now we got fighting words. Those are, uh, what do you mean by that, right? Yeah, and so, um, but I, I think what's cool is probably just share a little bit where you came from and, and uh, uh, what he's learned from the patristics. I mean, he teaches patristics at a, a PhD level and it's such a good gospel. And as we were coming down today, I said, you know what I learned from, from you is just that God's good and we can trust him. And there's nothing else other than that, you know, because a lot of times we're like, God's love, but he's, there's always a but attached, right? And he's none of that. He's just pure on what you see in Jesus is who the Father is, what the Holy Spirit is. So anyway, uh, I just want to, uh, um, his books, in fact, I've used this, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut is incredible. And you can get these on Amazon or your site or both? Amazon. Amazon. So Amazon, you know, what is hell all about? What did the fathers who actually compiled the Bible, what did they talk about hell, right? Um, and uh, a more Christ-like God, which is incredible. Yeah, my wife's like, yeah, so that's a good one. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, stricken by God, you know, they compiled a lot of these. What, what, what really happened on the cross? What, what was Jesus all about? Was, was God really angry and had to punish Jesus or was he just good? You can have it. You give me 20 bucks and you can have it. No, that's yours. That's yours, Matthew. And uh, I, you know what? Just send him some downloadable and I can't, and, and I can't find Can You Hear Me book. I don't know where they are. I give my books away like crazy, Barb knows. So anyway, without further ado, I know he's, I, could, I could spend a half hour, but uh, we just love and appreciate you. This body has learned a lot from you, and, and uh, I love the humility. I love the demeanor. I love the, um, you know, even when people get hostile about how good the gospel is, how you handle them. And I've learned a lot with that because sometimes I want to hit them with a bat. And Brad just reminds me, don't hit him with a bat. So, <laughs> anyway, love you, buddy. So whatever you want to share. Here's Brad Jerzak. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, my pastoral heart is concerned about people who are having to crank their necks, and what will this mean an hour from now to your body? So um, let's just, uh, okay. So if you can't see, please feel free to move. And if you Honestly, you shouldn't sit like that for an hour. You've got to do something. Or, 
or I will I will lose my mental health over it. <laughs> All right, and so we've got some um, we've got some folks also on live stream supposedly. Yeah, there'll be several hundred online. Welcome, guys. Welcome, and um, so it's great to be here and to share with you. I'm at a little disadvantage normally because when folks have have read some of my books, sometimes it's like, well, do I just repeat everything? Or then I find out like half haven't or they're in the midst of it. And okay, so we should do review and so on. Um, I think I'll, I'll just share my heart about things important to me, including some new things that I'm, I'm thinking on for a sequel to my more Christ-like God um, that, that's going to be titled A More Christ-like Way. And the point of A More Christ-like God was this, that God is like Jesus, God is exactly like Jesus, God has always been exactly like Jesus because Jesus Christ is God the Son who revealed Father, Son, and Spirit perfectly in his life ministry. And what he revealed about God is that God is love, period. And um, his whole life, his teachings, and, and uh, the way he treated people expressed this, but it comes into sharpest focus on the cross. What does the cross show us about God? The cross shows us that God is self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. That, that's the nature of God revealed on the cross. And you really, is, you really see this in 1 John 3 and 4. And, and I love John. The Gospel of John and the first epistle of John. We've got this eyewitness, beloved disciple who's had an extra generation to reflect on the meaning of Jesus' life and death and resurrection not just in his head, but in his heart as he's interacting in prayer for 30 years with the risen Christ. So he's got some angles that, you know, that we're so glad he brings to the table and an incredible maturity in terms of his theology of the Christ revealed God. A more Christ-like way then we'll, we'll say, okay, not only does Christ show us the nature of God, but he also shows us the true nature of of humanity, especially if we're to be followers of Christ. What is a follower of Christ meant to look like in the world on the ground? The cross shows us that we are to be self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering lovers of people. And, um, and that what if we could form communities? And I sense this, this is one. So thanks for gathering the folks. And um, so that's where what I'm working on right now. And so some of what I share, um, um, I'm going to back into the teaching from current things that I'm working at, but I suppose we need to talk about my story a little bit. One of the things that's going on in this group is that you are in a process of moving on. Hopefully all of us are. Let's just sp spend a moment thinking about this. Compared to 20 years ago, your conception of God is far more fill in the blank. Clear? Pardon? Mysterious. Mysterious? Progressed. Progressed? Yep. Understood. Friendly. Okay, now, yeah, think about character of God, right? So mysterious, friendly, familiar, loving, believing, loving. Peaceful. Isn't that something? Do you think God changed in the last 20 years? No, somehow we've been growing. Not, so not just moving on, but like growing into 
into a, um, a much more clear idea of who God is. And hopefully 20 years from now, we'll look back on today and say, whoa, did I ever move on? Now, what I like about, what I like about the moving on metaphor is that when you move on, you actually pack your bags. And my friend Brian Zahn talks this way. At one time, uh, he, you know, he, he came to Christ through the Jesus people movement. Then later, he developed a real uh, a word faithy thing. And then a while later, he moved on from that. To, and, and, but he, when he talks about packing his bags, he means, I actually packed things in the bags. Like I didn't leave everything behind, especially not Jesus. But um, with each part of our story, it will help all of us not to think back in shame about who we are and what we believed, even the real wacky stuff. Like my rapture theology as a, as a eight year old was very developed and completely wrong, <laughs> but I don't need to live in shame about that little boy. He's part of my story and part of my journey. And, and there were things from that era that I put, that I still have in my bags. Right? So the first 20 years, my summary is the first 20 years of my life, I grew up in a fundamentalist Baptist home. Thankfully, my very loving, uh, Bible-centered, prayerful parents protected me from a lot of the worst of that. Um, but they couldn't protect me from all of it. But what I packed when I moved on from those two decades as a Baptist was a deep love for the scriptures. And I would say I take them more seriously today than I ever have. But it was, it was a beautiful time. I remember my dad um, saying, you know, I, I convinced the Baptist pastor to baptize me way younger than he'd ever done with anyone else. But I convinced him. He's like, yeah, I, I said, I'm ready. And here's why. And he said, you're ready. <laughs> so the idea was I was going to get a Bible for my baptism gift. And I, I'm like, well, no, I should earn it. So this was performance kicking in. <laughs> right. And my dad's like, no, we'll just buy it for you. I'm like, no, no, I, I, I shouldn't have a Bible until I've memorized 30 verses. Just making shit up. I mean, this is... <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Well, by the time you're at 30, uh, you, the carnal nature has taken over and you're like, you're really glad that Jesus wept is a whole Bible verse, right? And, um, but I, you know, so I got my Bible and then I took my dad's Bible and I, I looked through every, every passage he had highlighted in his New Testament. I read in his Bible, then I read it in my Bible, and I highlighted it in my Bible. And you know what? Those verses went in, and they're still there. So I've moved on. I packed my bags, and I packed some, some really good stuff. There was that, plus my mom's part was worry slash intercession. It's kind of the same thing. <laughs> Maybe intercession in our, in our world was worrying in the presence of God. So... If anyone wants to use that as a book title, just go for it. It's yours. It's free. Unless I beat you to it. It'll, you know what? It'll probably be a chapter somewhere, right? Worrying in the presence of God. Because I was like a major worry wart. It was serious uh, um, insomnia. But my mom taught me to pray. And um, I, don't, I don't know that all of how she taught me to pray was the best. But it, I tell you what, when push comes to shove, guess who I phone for prayer? Actually, it really reminds me of when you guys were praying for me earlier. That's how my mom prays. And I'm like, oh, 
few, so no, you don't move on from that. That's silly, right? You, but well, you move on, but you pack your bags. Um, then I went, I went to a, a conservative, um, dispensational Bible college for four years. And that, that was hard. Uh, that's one of the times when I was furthest from Christ. My Bible knowledge now had become Bibleolatry, bibliolatry. Um, I thought I was very cool because I had written notes on every page of my Bible, you know, and this made me spiritual while I was sexually active in Bible college, which was awesome. So, no, it wasn't awesome. It was terrible. My, my stricken conscience was like, oh, right. But, and so what I, what I did was I, I, I had a conscience accusing me and then I had this Bible knowledge that w- had replaced my relationship with God. And it's like, thankfully I met my wife there. A romantic story. I was, I was gawking at all the girls. I'm from a small town. Suddenly there's like 500 girls in the cafeteria and I'm like, this is amazing. Right. And I'm, and I, uh, I, 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 I got to tell you, I don't want to use up time on it, but yeah, it was like that. So I'm, but I'm gawking. And then I noticed the other guys gawking. I'm like, this is creepy. And then I hear this laughter from the corner of my ear. And there's this beautiful, natural looking woman in, in jeans and a sweatshirt and a bob and no makeup. And she's laughing this with this freedom that I'm like, oh, and my very first thought is that's probably more like the woman I'll marry. A month later, we got these coupons that you could get a free 8x10 glossy portrait photo. And I thought, I'm, like, I'm not photogenic, but it's a good deal. So what I'll do is I'll find somebody to get fake engagement pictures with and send them to my parents and to make them think I got engaged impulsively a month into college. I'm like, who would do that with me? I remember the girl laughing. So I got her to go take fake engagement pictures with me. And then uh, three years later, we actually got engaged. So it was cool. I was thinking, I hope they, he makes us kiss. And she's like, I hope he doesn't make us kiss. She didn't even know my last name. We have this beautiful f- portrait. Um, so when we got married at the end of college. And, her, and I said to the Lord, you know, I'm, I'm ready to surrender. I actually want to follow you now. And I'll, I'll do whatever you want except youth pastor. And, uh, and then my wife's Mennonite church called me up and said, we need a youth pastor. Youth, young adults, and, uh, and, and uh, community outreach. But I, like I had taken no youth ministry courses. They were so lame anyway. They were completely passe. So thankfully I took all Bible and theology thinking I would be a teacher. And then... Um, the doors all closed except for that one. So I went and joined the Mennonites. And uh, not old order Mennonites. You know, these would be like kind of ethnic but community-based. And they'd been through the Jesus people movement. So they were open to the Holy Spirit. And uh, I did that for 10 years. And I tell you, we just fell in love with frontline ministry. We, we also were down the street from the Langley Vineyard. And we learned about prophetic ministry. And then so these... These high schoolers from the Mennonite church are prophesying over each other. And then they're like, and I'm just going, we're just going to keep reading the gospels over and over and over and over. And then um, the Holy Spirit really fell on the group and, and they started praying for healings. And we saw incredible stuff through these 14, 15 year old kids. Um, 
And, and so um, also during that time, I, I discovered Mennonites are way more gospel-centered than most than standard evangelicals. Most evangelicals, if you cover it, let's say 20 years, and you would compare it to a Mennonite church, we would, the Baptists were way more into Paul than into Jesus, actually. But the Mennonites are like doing Sermon on the Mount over and over and over. I'm like, no, they really take him seriously. And I, when I moved on from the Mennonites, that went in my bags. And uh, we made a po we've made a policy that every single sermon that we preach in our, s our church has to be pointed to Jesus and the gospel. You can't do leadership themes from the life of Moses. That's not okay. It has to be the gospel of Jesus. You can talk about how Moses points to Jesus or David's Psalms point to Jesus or the prophets point to Jesus. But I picked that up from the Mennonites and I've never, I'm not going back. It was beautiful. Also their peace theology really appealed to me. And um, in terms of, I am not naturally a pacifist. I got in a lot of fights in high school. Um, I was bullied. The problem is when you, when you, learn how to fight back in self-defense and you win half of the fights, you're the bully half the time. So, so there, are, but I had to deal with this with, and the way I dealt with it was very bad. It was violence, fantasies, vengeance, violent vengeance fantasies in my heart from grade three to grade 12. And now, so that's what's in my heart. There's a rage in there and there's a violence in there. And I, 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 I know what it is to be afraid of that I've hit someone too hard or not hard enough, you know? And so it's not pacifism in me that leads me to the nonviolence of Jesus. It's like, I need to be saved from that, those fantasies. I still need to be. When my haters come after me online, that thing's lurking back there. I've been doing like, you know, 25, 30 years of, of studied practices in nonviolence while my rager is doing push-ups. <laughs> so I've got, you know, so what you see in my reactions online, that's like, that's not actually what's in my heart, except to the degree Christ has transformed me. And thank you to the Mennonites for their part in that. Um, but after 10 years with them, um, the, the way they trained us in a Christ-centered uh, a peace model really gave us a heart for people on the margins. And so uh, my wife and I joined another couple who had been at the Toronto Airport Church when the renewal um, was on there. And we, uh, we thought, hey, let's go start a renewal church. And that's not what happened. Uh, we went and started a church that began attracting people with disabilities, addicts, uh, children who couldn't be in normal churches, <laughs> and the poor. And... Um, it, it was an incredible project for called Fresh Wind, and I led it for ten years. My wife led it for five years, and the fruit of that, of those ten years, you know, I've moved on from there too. But I believe I've caught some of God's heart for those on the margins, and uh, and Matthew twenty five, you know, what you did to the least of these, you did it to me. And what one of the great things is that that's not ominous to me. It's actually an invitation. If you want to encounter Jesus, he'll meet you in those folks, whoever those folks happen to be in your world. Could be other groups. That's just happened to be the ones in our group. Um, and then a, and the, then a strange thing happened. After all those years, um, I came into contact. Well, my theology around 
a violent God began to come apart because I was taking seriously his call to love your enemies and to, to radical forgiveness and so on. And yet I'm like, then why are, why would God do to us or to his son what he won't, what he, what he says is sin for us? Like, was God really punishing his son on the cross? And wait a minute, isn't Jesus God? And so, okay, so now we're going to split the Trinity up. But how many gods are there? Any, you know, and I was asking all of these questions and the whole, the whole question of penal substitutionary atonement was unraveling on me, which by the way, was my gospel. That's what I preach as the gospel. And second, that was the topic of my master's thesis, the nature of God's suffering and the nature of Christ's suffering and substitution. And what I said was in the thesis was that uh, God actually cannot forgive. He must punish and he must punish sin either in Christ on the cross instead of you or in you in eternal conscious torment. That, that was my thesis. And, but now it was coming apart because we were seeing how God works with the most broken people in, including people who'd been like devastated by uh, sexual assault and molestation as children, but also their perpetrators. And I'm just, every time we would go into inner healing ministry and we were working, people were flying to us from other countries to get inner healing because we, we were developing this. We just couldn't find any retribution in God's heart or nature or reactions ever. And I'm like, well, then what does this mean? What does this mean? <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm also learning to practice contemplative prayer, listening prayer, and went from charismatic hearing to contemplative hearing. And as I'm doing this, um, one day this thought passes through my head. And I mean, it, it was like a, I'd call it an internal audible voice. So you, I wouldn't, didn't hear it with my ears, but it was a sentence in my head. Um, stop telling people I was punishing my son. That's not what was happening. That was the tone. And I'm like, what? My entire gospel is this. <laughs> Like, I don't even know a plan B. So I go back to the Bible just, and I'm like, you don't, you don't just start a new, okay, so I'm the king of not making shit up, right? Okay. So you don't just get to go make, make up a new thing, but I'm like, okay, so the first thing you got to do is weigh it and test it in scripture. Where do I end up? Isaiah 53. Here's what it says. You will think he was stricken by God. But it was your sins he bore. And suddenly I heard it in a whole different way. And I'm like, father wasn't punishing son. We were. God's wrath wasn't being poured out on his son. Ours was. And God was, where was God on Good Friday? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against yeah. us. It's like, wait a minute. Suddenly all these verses are, well, still, I know that you don't take one person and one Bible and put them on an island or you will get a cult. You'll be your, I had no intent of being my own Pope. So I'm like, we've got to, we've got to weigh and test this because I, I just like with others. So I thought I'm going to send out emails across the body of Christ to people I've been reading and people I'm starting to trust, but they can't just be in my evangelical echo chamber. I will send emails to 
evangelicals and charismatics and liberals and Catholics and Anglicans and Orthodox, uh, Vineyard, and so on. And so I sent out like um, 19 emails. And basically the premise was this. I am seeing that there must be alternatives to penal substitution in terms of how Christ saved us and what the cross, how the cross saves us. Um, and, and what do you think? And I just started getting back these incredible essays, some of them freshly written to me by these various scholars and practitioners of justice, so, uh, you know, uh, restorative justice. And, and some of them were just, a few of them were just reprints from publishers and so on. Uh, and that's what the Stricken by God book is. It was, that was the result of me weighing and testing this. Um, and then I guess I'll share the Lazar story. Is that all right? So, um, at the, so, so now I'm getting these essays into me and I'm, I'm back in the scriptures on my own as well. But that's when I met Archbishop Lazar Pahalo. He's a retired Archbishop in the East Orthodox Church, and he is like a steward and an expert of the early church fathers. So when Mike mentioned patristics, that's what we mean, early church fathers and mothers. The people who gathered the Bible, the people who chose what would be in the New Testament, the people who gave us the doctrine of the Trinity, the people who gave us the doctrine of the full deity of Jesus Christ. Okay, that we should probably check what they said. <laughs> but my idea of church history was 500 years old only. That's like too recent. That's 1500 years after Jesus. What, when we have the stuff from John's disciples and his disciples and his disciples in print online, you could even search on it. And uh, so, so John the Apostle had a disciple named Polycarp. You can read his stuff. He had a disciple named Irenaeus, the father of systematic theology, who could go to Polycarp and say, what did John say about this? Like, you should read them. You know, that's what I was thinking. Well, that, so I end up with this expert who's this old monk who looks like Gandalf, like literally. The, the long beard, the robe, the pointy nose, and the stern look, and, and, but also kind of the best of Gandalf's character, right, in the sense of loving this thing exuding from him. So I, 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 I had a mentor who said, why don't we meet with him, and we'll start a magazine together. So we started this magazine called Clarion Journal of Spirituality and Justice in this little monastery print shop, archaic, right, hand trimming everything and stapling and folding and collating Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of papers. Why well, I'm getting to collate stuff beside a, a retired archbishop who knows everything. Um, well, he doesn't know everything, but any question I ask him, he will say, well, as St. Athanasius of Alexandria said in 325, blah, 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 from heart, right? So I start telling him about how my penal substitution thing is coming apart. And he says, wait a minute. You believed that God could not forgive sin, but he had to pour out his wrath by violently sacrificing his firstborn to satisfy his anger. I'm like, that's crass, but basically. And he goes, I see your problem. <laughs> you worship Molech, not Yahweh. 
Molech was the god that the Israelites sacrificed their children to, passed them through the fire, and Jeremiah condemns Jerusalem for for this. And Jer when Jeremiah says it, says it, he says, something Yahweh never even had in his mind. The idea of burning your children. Think about that. Something Yahweh never even, that it never entered his mind. But I'm like, oh. And so I'm like, you mean you don't believe in penal substitution? And I actually felt like relieved. And he, he goes, we're not even allowed to. I'm like, you mean there's a whole section of the church where you're allowed to not believe this? And he goes, there's 350 million of us and we're the stewards of the ancient fathers. I'm like, whoa. What this did for me is it gave me permission because at some level I am deeply conservative. I don't mean in a political, social way. I mean, I'm not into making shit up. This is the theme tonight. So, <clears throat> I need, I, I'm con Can you share something? So, I don't, I mean, we've talked online and on the phone, back and forth, and so we get in the car, we're not five minutes down the road, and he's like, Mike, I just don't believe in making shit up. And I was like, he goes, oops, can I say that? I go, say that tonight? Because I think all of us are like, cut the crap. We want Jesus, nothing less. And so, he's at home here, right? So anyway, that's why, that's where this theme came from. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So that's my theme. And what I'm saying by conservative then is something needs to be conserved when we move on. Here's a fact. Since the year 2000, perhaps more than 60 million people have left the church in America. So perhaps more than 60 million. The most recent poll that I read from just two weeks ago or so was that now the nuns and duns, that means non-affiliated and done with church and done with faith, they're now the same size as the evangelicals. Most of them came from the evangelicals. That means we're talking... Now, here's the problem with that. I know we... I needed to move on from evangelicalism. Some of you haven't, and you don't need to yet. But my concern is that those who have moved on, of those, of that group, 14% of them still believe in Jesus. So if you've moved on from Christianity, be careful that you don't move on from Jesus. And but that's the trend that's really worrying me, right? So how do we talk about moving on? How do we te detox from, from, from like poisonous fundamentalism without losing the core? We've got to conserve something. And for me, Archbishop Lazar represented that conservation in a really beautiful way. And so, um, uh, um, so I want to just share a little bit about about the heart of that core that I'm, I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. Uh, d like, do, do not move on from this. Okay? So, first of all, what the early church, because it's so beautiful, what the early church consistently believed, at least until the time of Augustine in around 400, consistently believed 
God is good, period. Amen. And all he does is goodness. Another way to say that is God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Another way to say this is that God is Christ-like and nothing he does is ever unchristlike. And so God is good. And, and, um, and that this meant a lot to them. This goodness or the good is how they would talk about it. the good is expressed as um, beauty, truth, and justice. And the beauty, truth, and justice are mediated in this world through love. And so they saw there was a certain simplicity to God. It gets complex, but there's a certain simplicity to that God is love only. And Mike alluded to this before. Sometimes when I talk about the love of God, that God is love only, then people go, well, he's love, but he's also just. He's love, but he's also righteous. He's love, but he's also holy. Hang on. What is the righteousness, holiness, and justice that is not love? That's the Pharisees who crucified love incarnate. Does that mean God is not righteous, holy, and just? Of course it doesn't. What it means is that the love of God is his essential nature. Anyone here into essential oils? What's essential mean in essential oils? Pure. God is pure love. And then if you think of that like a diamond, for example, he's not a diamond plus something else. Every attribute of God, including righteousness, holiness, and justice, are ever only facets of that diamond. Hebrews 12 is a great example of this, where the author is saying, look it, if you find yourself uh, being disciplined by God, don't worry, it's never anything other than fatherly love restoring limp hands and weak knees. It's about, so the righteousness, the righteousness and justice of God, the holiness of God, all of that are expressions of love. That's the early church fathers. Then they would say, you know, we've got these other expressions in the Bible and they're problematic because they don't look much like Jesus. So we've got to deal with them. And they would name them. They would say things like when we're talking about anger or wrath or retribution, the fathers would say, this is, there is no retribution in the nature of God. So what are these, why are we using these words? It's like, because that's how, this is an experience we're having and we are using these words as metaphors for that experience. It'd be like this. My dad says, don't touch the hot stove or you will be burnt. So I go touch the hot stove and I get burnt. And then I say, God burnt me or dad burnt me. Did dad burn me? No, but I got burnt when I disobeyed him. So it must be the wrath of dad. Well, that's stretching it. But if you want to call it that, this is what's happening in the Bible all the time. Do not defy me and make a pact with Egypt's Pharaoh or Babylon will come and surround the city and destroy it. So they make a pact with Pharaoh because they don't trust God. Babylon comes, surrounds the city, they destroy it. And they go, why did God destroy Jerusalem? <laughs> Babylon is the wrath of God. 
Well, the fathers look at this and they go, now that we've seen Jesus, now that we've seen God's response of radical forgiveness on the cross, we know that to talk about the wrath of God is a metaphor. Fine, use the metaphor. But they said, here's St. John Cassian. To literalize that metaphor is a monstrous blasphemy and it creates an idol. I'm like, well, that's an idol I grew up with. The God who's going to get you, the God you, you know, that, that you're terrified of, the God who will, the mighty smiter, <laughs> right? And, and so what I'm, what I'm saying is this kind of God appeals to me, but I don't get to just make him up. This is the God that we inherit along with our Bibles through the bishops who passed on the, um, the, the, the teachings of Christ through his apostles. And so, so that's where it starts. God is love only. Um, every other attribute is a facet of that love, an expression of that love, or it's not God at all. Second, if you want, so just like God can have, you can have a lot of weird ideas about God, as you know. But if we say God is love, you can have a lot of weird ideas about love, too. You can, like, what kind of love? Miley Cyrus love? Um, you know? What, you know, James Bond love? Or, like, pick, a, pick, pick our, what's a love? Like, I love cantaloupe with sugar on it, you know? If you want to know what God's love looks like, the fathers say, look at Jesus. And Jesus is not just one facet of God. Paul says, in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelled bodily. That's a strong statement. Who's the Godhead? Father, Son, and Spirit. How much of the Father, Son, and Spirit dwelled in Jesus? All the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in Jesus. So you don't get to play, well, Jesus, good cop, bad cop. Jesus is the nice part of God, and the Father's kind of the grouchy one. And no. To see, if you look at, if you see me, you've seen the father in his character. And so, so they would say this, God is love and love looks like Jesus. And specifically what I said earlier, then this brings us to the climax of the cross, that the cross reveals God as self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love that will restore all things. And so I'm like, well, I could sign up for that God. In fact, I met that God in 12-step recovery meetings. They get that. They, get, they could totally get that. They don't smuggle in retribution. Um, and uh, Except in the Christian 12-step recovery meetings. Sometimes it's very weird. They poison, actually poison it. You should be having this beautiful Christian higher power, and instead... Christian is a code word for retribution and shame. How, how awful. What have we done? You know, so, <coughs> pardon me. So that's, that's probably all I need to say about the fathers for now. Did I miss anything you'd want me to add? Uh, no, I love it. Um, I think uh, one of the really cool things here is what's really helped me is because I think a lot of us probably grew up with the same idea that um, the Bible's inerrant, meaning there's no errors whatsoever. And the fathers never really looked at it like that like you were sharing. So maybe just share a little bit like that. Cause I think for, for the first time you hear that, so you're saying you don't believe the Bible. 
like, no, I, I'm saying it, but I'm, I, I see it very differently than how I was taught. That The fathers never looked at it. There's not one error in it because they say some really gruesome things. And so how do we justify this Old Testament God, New Testament God? Is it okay to go its imagery and metaphors and things, how they looked at it? So, okay. or, you don't, or whatever you want. No, it's good. I'm just, I'm just deciding whether I need to remind me, because we're going to come back to the cross. Yep. I th- um, yeah. So, said just make some stuff up. <laughs> So I grew up hearing that the Bible is inerrant. This is a very modern word and a modernistic word. It's 200 years old at the most. And what we meant was the Bible, the, everything the Bible affirms as true is true. And, um, and then we would also try to spin the Bible so that it would never contradict itself. Because if it's all true, then it can't contradict itself, except for read the bloody thing. You know, and, and not only, not only like direct contradictions, but like horrendous representations of God that the Abba Jesus revealed could not possibly have sanctioned. And yet they're in there. So, so now you've got a question. Am I going to throw the Bible under the bus or God under the bus? You don't have to do either. What needs to go is this weird modernistic interpretation that is wooden and, and literalistic and very small and narrow. And, but I'll give you an example. My crisis at the same time this whole penal substitution thing was going on. I'm reading like the first Samuel 15 passage where, where um, uh, Saul says to Samuel, you know, you've got to go kill all the Amalekites because of what their the ancestors did to Moses and the people like 400 years ago. It's not because they're wicked. It's not because they're idolaters. It's not because they're child abusers. All the ways we spun it to justify genocide. No, no. It was like because of the sins. Of, how would you like it if God came along and said, kill every man, woman, child, and even the domestic an- animals because of what your ancestors did in 1600? Really? Now, that's fine in Legoland, but you start thinking about actual babies? Think about it, you know? So I'm reading that. I'm like, could the, could the Abba, who so loved the world that he sent his only son, have commanded that? And I was really questioning it. My evangelical friends are like, well, it's in the Bible, so it has to be true. I'm like, huh. And then I went to Deuteronomy. Here's a statute for you. When you come to a city, offer it peace. If they take your offer of peace, enslave them all. (laughs) If they say no to your offer of peace, kill all the men. Enslave the women and children. And if you find a woman that appeals to you, take her. Cut off her hair, her toenails, and her fingernails, and take away the clothes of her people and put on your own stuff. Have her for a month. And if after months you still want her, marry her. If you don't, don't kill her, just let her go. The Abba Jesus revealed commanded this. There's no way. But inerrancy. (laughs) But Moses emails. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it, it is silly, right? But it's horrendous. But what do you do? So what do I do? I go to Archbishop Lazar. That's what I do. I'm like, okay, Lazar, we need to have it out here because First Samuel 15 is driving me nuts. I'm, I'm like, you've got God commanding uh, Saul, Samuel to command Saul to commit genocide. Because, and I'm like, what do you do with that? And, and, he, and he says, uh, he says, well, God didn't command that. But it says he did. It's like, well, he did. He, of course he didn't. That's a cantankerous old bigot putting words in God's mouth because he can't get over uh, the sins of this other nation. I'm like, but it's, but it's the word of God. And he goes, no. <laughs> Almost in my nose. Now listen carefully, everyone. Jesus is the word of God. And every scripture that claims to reveal God must bow to the living God when he came in the flesh. That's what he said. I'll say it again. Jesus is the word of God and every scripture that claims to reveal God must bow to the living God when he came in the flesh. I'm like, well, then, then what do we do with these scriptures? He goes, oh, you must keep them. I'm like, why? Why not just get rid of it then? He said, because they're mirrors of us. We still do this all the time. And what happens is this story is part of a grand revelation where we see the tensions between different competing images of God right in the text. This is a text in travail. Travail is the agony a woman goes through in labor about to give birth. And we've got rabbis debating who God is and what God is like. And whoever writes Samuel says, God tempted David to count his mighty men so he could punish them. Chronicles comes along, tells the same story and says, and says Satan tempted David to count his mighty men. I'm like, well, was it God or Satan? Well, when I believed in inerrancy, I had to make God Satan. I had to make them the same. And, and Lazar goes, well, no, the chronicler is 300 years further into history. And he, he's going, oh, we saw it wrong, but now we're getting it. And this tension about who God is builds and builds till God has to come in person. God comes. So I, I might say this, the word of God is inerrant, infallible, and inspired. And when he was 18, he grew a beard. Jesus is the word of God and the scriptures testify of this Jesus and point to this Jesus and actually go through the pains of a community trying to make sense of God, hearing his voice, getting it wrong, but then giving birth to God the Son himself, who then goes back and says, here's Jesus' entire takeaway from the Old Testament. If you ever have trouble with this, boil it down. Ken Tanner taught me this. All the law and the prophets can be summarized this way. Love God and love your neighbor. That's Jesus' takeaway. Genocide doesn't fit that. It doesn't have, whatever was going on in that story, don't worry about it. It's not Jesus' takeaway. And we are Christians, followers of Jesus. So that's a bit of the controversial stuff. But what I can tell you about the early church fathers is this. They absolutely believe the scriptures were inspired. They're the ones who gathered them for us and said, these, these are necessary 
don't throw them out because they testify of Jesus and they show you how to become his disciples. So they said they're inspired. By the way, I, I looked up what the father said about infallible. They never once used that of the Bible. The Holy Spirit's infallible. Working with people in their own contexts and cultures to develop these precious, sacred, very self-critical scriptures that are genius, absolute genius. Um, so that's a little bit about the Bible. Do you need me to say more than that? I love it. Okay. So I know, I mean, some of that's out of the box, but I'm just saying I'm not making shit up here. Inerrancy is 200 years old. That's making stuff up. But the Bible, it's inspired testimony of the people of God on their journey towards meeting God when he came face in, in person. All right, I, I want to come back now to the cross for a moment. I'll get to some other stuff and then we'll wind up. When I, if it's true that God is love and he's not retributive and didn't need to satisfy his wrath through the violent torture and death of his own son, then what's the cross about? Why the cross? Why is it Paul says, I glory in nothing except the cross of Christ. Well, let me summarize it this way. The cross is a word that doesn't just mean the wooden pieces, right? We're not just talking about, and it's not even just talking about the crucifixion. The crucifixion was a terrible crime. The crucifixion was a murder, according to Stephen in Acts. The crucifixion was was the, the worst act in human history because we didn't just kill a man. We murdered God the Son in the flesh. And, um, and so the crucifixion's terrible. But the cross, so the crucifixion is what we did. The cross is what Jesus did. The cross includes, it, the cross is actually a metonym. Do you know that word, metonym? Metonym is like um, all hands on deck. When you say all hands on deck, do you just want the sailor's hands on, on deck? No, you want the whole sailor there. Hand is a metonym symbolizing the whole sailor. That's a metonym. Cross is a metonym symbolizing all that Christ did for us in his death, descent into Hades, and resurrection from the dead. So even Easter is part of the cross. You don't separate cross and, and uh, you don't separate death and resurrection. They're part of this one cross event. All right, so what's the purpose of the cross? Why the cross? Um, the cross is a revelation and it's a decisive victory. It's a revelation that God is, I said it before, self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. Maybe I'll unpack that a minute each. Self-giving means God himself came and poured himself into the world as love. Like completely poured himself, this infinite spring of love and life, poured himself into the world, even unto death. He, you don't get empty yourself more than that. And this is what Philippians 2 says. He emptied himself, took on the form of, of a servant, and even died in, in the humility uh, uh, and the humiliation of, of the cross. And, and uh, so he holds nothing back at all. That's self-giving. Radically forgiving means who did, who did he forgive on the cross? 
everyone. Romans 5 is so important because we've often preached a gospel that said, if you repent, he'll forgive you. That's not what Romans 5 says. Romans 5 says this, when you were weak, when you were sinners, and when you were enemies. He, he died for you, he forgave you, and he reconciled you. Now, in growing up Baptist, we probably would have said, yes, he forgave us at the cross, but we would not have said reconciled. You're not reconciled till you get saved. It's like, wait a minute. Romans 5 says he reconciled you while you were still his enemies. So it's grace first. And then a summons to respond. We love because he first loved us. If we repent, it's because he first forgave us. If we respond, it's because he first initiated. It's always him first, right? And who does this include then? Does it include just believers or just the elect? It's like, no. He, it, it, I had this uh, little kid, nine years old. We went on holidays with his family and his mother says to me, I, I apologize in advance for about what, what's about to happen. He's been working on questions for you for six months. I'm like, oh no. So we're by the pool for three days with this kid. And he's, maybe he almost feels like he's on the, on the autistic spectrum or something in the sense of super bright, but also like obsessive. <laughs> and, he's, and he's like, do you think God, do you think when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, did the father say yes? I'm like, well, what do you think? He goes, he goes, yeah, I think so. I'm like, why do you think so? He goes, because Jesus always prayed in the Father's will. I'm like, ooh, you're good, kid. And then uh, he's like, who do you think them was? I'm like, who do you think them was? He goes, well, do you think it could be Caiaphas and the high priests? Would they be included in them? I'm like, sounds right to me. And he goes, how about Pilate? Could it be Pilate? And I said, what do you think? He's like, yeah, I think Pilate and all the Roman soldiers, they forgave them too. He goes, how about Judas? I'm like, well, what do you think? <laughs> and he says, he, sing, he says, I think Judas loved Jesus. I'm like, why do you think that? He says, because he followed him. And when they went out two by two, he did the miracles too. And when, when they found, he found out they killed Jesus, he threw the money back. He was sad. He was so sad he killed himself. I think he loved Jesus. I'm like, oh, okay. So if, if the father forgave Judas, what does that mean? I'm like, I don't know. What do you think that means? He goes, do you, now this is an Orthodox kid, so he can ask this. He goes, do you think it'd be okay if I prayed for Judas? I'm like, ask your mother. <laughs> so... They went and asked the Orthodox priest, and, and the priest was so wise, because what is the kid actually doing there? He doesn't, it's not about Judas, it's about the kid's heart, is expanding in love, is this vision of all-encompassing, all-inclusive forgiveness, and, and he would, so the priest would not crush that. He's like, yes, every prayer you pr he prays for Judas may have no effect on Judas, but it'll affect that kid. Right? And then self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. That co-suffering is literally means compassion. Compassion, co-suffering. Co-suffering love is the means by which Christ unites himself to the human condition to the uttermost. He 
he assumes the fallen human nature and he, and thereby heals human nature um he, he, you know he gets his flesh from a fallen woman named mary and he cleanses that flesh by uniting his divine nature to it so already in the womb he's begun this to heal humanity but it but um but you see that co-suffering to the nth degree on the cross, where on the cross, he doesn't just die his own personal crucifixion. He draws up into himself all the suffering from humanity from all time. Every bullet fired from a handgun or assault rifle, every bit of shrapnel from every bomb dropped in every war, every a, a sexual assault on any child or woman or whoever, um, from the first time the first caveman dragged someone into a cave by the hair. I mean, we're talking all of the suffering of humanity. He draws it up into himself on the cross, swallows it in love, and recycles it as forgiveness. His co-suffering with us means he gets it, and not only he gets it, but he will heal it all. So that's, what, that's the revelation of the cross of what God is like, who God is. Self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. But also I want to say briefly that it's, a, it's not just a revelation. It's a decisive act of victory over Satan, sin, and death. Now, there, I know that like Peter talks about Satan is crawling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But Jesus also says, on good the night before he's crucified, he said, now the hour has come. Now the prince of this world is driven out. Somehow he has defanged the enemy. And Hebrews 2 says that it was through his death, he conquered death and the fear of death through which the devil held us in bondage all our lives. He's lost his leverage. The defeat of Satan. So yes, there's still a working out of this in our lives, but also it was a done deal. It is finished over Satan, over sin, through forgiveness. He, he didn't pay the debt. He canceled it. So we did that. He paid the debt thing as a way to, I mean, yes, there, it cost him his life. So it was a cost. But in terms of we, the Bible uses the word, we're pardoned. That means no one has to die again for your life to be made right. He, he, he gives his life and he, so there's this element, it's complex, but I go into it a lot in more, in more detail in a more Christ-like God, this idea that God is absolutely free to forgive and that he didn't need to punish in order to forgive. No, he can say this, I forgive you and I will, I will bear the cost of this. And the cost isn't punishment. It's the curse of death itself. And so this is where Satan's sin, but also the decisive conquest of death. So he enters Hades and he conquers it and uh, uh, defeats it brutally. Do you have time for a Nic Nicodemus story? You guys good? Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. So in the early church, they really believed that Jesus conquered Hades or death itself in his descent into Hades, which gets into the Apostles' Creed, and in his resurrection when he comes back from the dead. There's scattered bits of this throughout the scriptures. 
in the Psalms already where he's, he's broken down the gates and he's, re- and he's redeeming the dead from the pit. Um, in the prophets, you get it also. He shattered the gates or the, the bars of iron that held the dead prisoner. Um, in Ephesians, it says he goes into the lower parts of the earth and then he comes back out leading a parade of captives behind him. And in um, 2 Peter, I think it is, he's, is it First or 2 Peter? He, he enters, it says that um, he went and he preached and the word is evangelized. The spirits who were held captive, who had died in the flood. And then it says this, and those who were judged in the flesh were made alive in the spirit. So this is a post-mortem evangelism tour. And Peter has the wildest way. Talk about not a literalist. Peter's, here's Peter's logic. Christ is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. So he even goes down into the grave, evangelizes those who drowned in the flood, raises them up, and that makes the flood their baptism. This is Peter. Who are you? Who thinks like this? Not me, right? But so you've got these weird scriptures like this. And, and also some pretty universalist ones. Like, it's like, yeah, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it's like the word, like confession that you'd give at your baptism, that Jesus is Lord and those who, you know, and, and so on. Anyway, you've got this going on in the New Testament. So the early fathers, they, they gather this into their hymns and into their liturgies. And... Um, one and and they create they put it together as a cohesive narrative in something called the Gospel of Nicodemus, and this is hundreds of years after Christ. It's not like the four Gospels at all. What it is is it's a theological reflection on what happened between Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning, and it's so fun. And you can read it online. And the early church honored this book. They're like, no, it doesn't belong in the Bible, but it expresses what we believe. And here's what it says. So in the story, you've got Beelzebub or Satan having a chat with Hades, who's a, who's rep, is a personification of death. And in this chat, um, Hades is, is saying, there's a bad sign right now. And Satan's like, what's the bad sign? He's like, John the Baptist is here. John the forerunner. And Satan's like, what's so bad about that? And it's like, John's a forerunner. If John is here preaching in Hades, that means Jesus is coming here. And Satan's like, it's not a problem. I've been like tormenting Jesus. And Hades is like, this is not a ju- just a man you're dealing with. And uh, so I'm telling you, beware. If he shows up here, do whatever you can to keep him out because we don't know what will happen. They pan over to John the Baptist He's preaching. Maybe he's got his head, head in his arm or something. I don't know. But he's preaching. And he's like, and he's saying to all, these, all the people in hell, basically, look at Jesus is coming here. He's going to be crucified. And when he comes here, he will preach good news. And, he, and you should repent. Because if you repent, when he leaves, so can you. Wow. Back to Satan and Hades, and they're like, it's getting intense. And suddenly, this flash of light occurs, and Christ shows up. 
and, and Satan is driven out and Hades is slain and Christ enters in to the very bottom of hell and he, lo and he looks for the people at the very, very, very bottom and it's Adam and Eve. And he pulls them up by the wrists out of their tombs and he leads them out of Hades into resurrection life with a parade coming behind them. The only debate in the early church was, will everybody go or not? Would you? <laughs> so there's this beautiful, I'll wind up this part, this just decisive victory. It's all symbolic for, uh, I'm I, I may make it. I've got 3% left. Um, there's this, so this idea that the cross it's, it's, it's a symbolic story. It's not literal. It's symbolic, though, of the conquest of death in Hades and the great hope we have that the resurrection may be <laughs> way bigger than we expected. So I'll give you one example. In the early church, there's a guy named St. John Chrysostom. That means silver tongue because he was such an anointed preacher. And he, and he preached a sermon on... At Pascha, that's like the Passover weekend, Good Friday and Sunday, right? And this is like around 400-ish. Paschal homily, John Chrysostom. And it was so anointed that the church called him John Chrysostom after that. But also they said, we must preach this sermon, this exact sermon, every year at Easter until Christ returns. So far, we have at least the 350 million in the East have. I got to be the one who preached it this year at our service. It's only four paragraphs. I'm just going to read to you the last two, not to convince you or convert you to anything, but just to say, here's how the early church saw the absolute victory of Jesus over Satan, sin, and death, okay? He says this, and it's a feast because they're breaking their fast at this great love feast. Uh, enjoy ye all the feast of faith. Receive ye all the riches of loving kindness. Let no one bewail his poverty for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one weep for his iniquities for pardon has shown forth from the grave. Let no one fear death for the Savior's death has set us free. He that was held prisoner of it has annihilated it by descending into hell he made hell captive. He embittered it when it tasted of his flesh. And Isaiah foretold this crying out. Hell said he was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. It was embittered for it was abolished. It was embittered for it was mocked. It was embittered for it was slain. It was embittered for it was overthrown. It was embittered for it was fettered in chains. It took a body and met God face to face. It took earth and it encountered heaven. It took what was seen and fell upon the unseen. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you were overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ being risen from the dead has become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. To him be glory and dominion unto ages of ages. Amen. So that's pretty optimistic. 
if you need permission to be optimistic, conserve that sermon. And uh, uh, you won't find much in the modern world that matches it except maybe Easter song. Seriously. And, and um, uh, when, when, when we preach it at church, people lunge forward saying, truly he is risen. And this means something, you know? So, um, so back to the question, well, if God wasn't punishing in Jesus, why do you need the cross? To reveal God as love and for the decisive victory over Satan, sin, and death. Amen. Amen. Um, I think we should, I'll close with an illustration, then we'll let people go that want to, and then we'll open it up for Q&A. Is that right? Okay. So in the spirit of not making shit up, I want to, I want to, um, I want to, I want to offer a suggestion. And that is those of us who've gone in, who, who have moved on from, from earlier and sometimes toxic forms of, of Christianity. Um, we've often, it's become very popular to call it our deconstruction. Is that popular here? Not as popular? Oh, in Canada, it's like really popular. It's like, well, when I went through my deconstruction, we do this with our shoulders. You know, it's like this thing. It's almost like it's similar to like when I got saved. But now it's like when I got saved from being saved kind of thing or something. I don't know. It's, it, it's, so they'll talk about deconstruction. Um, and, and, I, and it kind of felt like that to me because so much of it for me was tumultuous. But I also don't like the word because it's violent. It implies, it's a metaphor of dynamite and jackhammers and falling buildings. And I'm afraid that people who have embraced sort of a deconstruction, and you could call it, call it detox too in a way, except there's something good about that one. Because there's also, you go to rehab. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but for, so this idea of deconstruction means that then people become very sloppy about just shattering their whole faith system. And all, all the walls need to come down. And we're going to just bulldoze the whole damn thing. And we'll start from scratch make, and make shit up. Okay, so, and what we make up is like worse. Um, or, or just like an abandonment of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's not enlightenment. That's endarkenment. You know, so I have, a, I have a beautiful illustration that works better, too, in fact, but I'll go into detail with one. But Brian Zahn would say, don't do deconstruction, do art restoration. Our faith is a masterpiece that we have received as a gift. If it's got some grime on it, be careful how you remove the grime. You do not take a knife to a Michelangelo. Treat it, our agenda needs to be probably stronger around keeping that which was good than getting rid of that which was bad. This is the parable of the wheat and tares. You start ripping up the weeds aggressively and you're going to kill the crop. All right, now here's my illustration. So I have this, my oldest... Um, daughter-in-law she's like just so wonderful but also partly because she's quirky she's got kind of a hipster but this she loves shopping in in um thrift stores 
and she's really into retro and vintage, right? So when she's getting married to my son, she went online to these vintage online stores and they had wedding dresses. And she found one that fit her perfectly. She, I mean, we're talking, she couldn't lose or gain three pounds. And, and it was sewn in the 1930s and it was gorgeous silk satin. And she's like, it's only $200. She loves a deal too. That was part of it. I'm like, grab it. If you don't grab it, I will. I text her the next day. Did you grab it? And she goes, no, um, this time procrastination won out. And I'm like, oh no. And she goes, no, no, I got it. But I got it for 160 today. Yay. <laughs> I'm like, you gave me a heart attack for $40. <laughs> so she gets it though. And there's water stains on it. Not, not really bad, but like, what do you do? So we took it to Mr. Yong. Yes. Mr. Yong has a dry cleaning shop and his primary agenda is not to get stains out. It is to preserve precious fabrics. You see the difference? And so with great care, he got as much of the stains out as he could without damaging any of the dress. And I tell you, when he was done, it was immaculate and there was not a thread damaged on this on, on this beautiful wedding dress that we didn't sew that we received through generations right from whoever she bought it and he put it up in the window and everybody who came in but until we could pick it up would see it and and their breath was taken away and they would comment and oh it's so beautiful you guys this is our gospel so in the moving on process, in the packing your bags process, in the deconstruction process, it's like, let's be conservative even while we're detoxing because we're not just going out there and ripping down a hierarchy or an institution. This is your heart. Your, your heart is precious to God. So take good care of it as you're processing these things. And even some of the stuff I said tonight, if, if you can't swallow it, please don't. I mean, I don't, I'm not here to damage your faith. Go away and test what I've heard. And, 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 if, and if it feels like, no, this could damage my faith, you, you're obligated not to, um, to go there. And then, but you don't have to hate me either. You can just go, oh, so that's what the Orthodox believe. Well, that was a bit weird. Nice guy though. <laughs> At least he didn't make shit up. <laughs> Let's give Brad a hand. That's good, huh? That's good. And so, uh, hey, all you guys online, I'm sure you had a treat. But uh, so let's take a break. Um, I just say I appreciate you. Um, and uh, I really mean that. It's, it's, um, <laughs> he's funny, isn't he? So we're, we're driving in the car and he's like, because uh, I, I, I told him, I said, I've probably like what he's, what I've learned from him just, and Barb can attest to this, probably thousands of hours, right? He goes, what if I'm all wrong? Yeah. And I go, well, at least I'm happy being wrong. <laughs> and so, because uh, I've been more happy um, and I don't have to make up things like scripture makes sense to me when you, when you, when we get away, in my opinion, some of these ideas that we were just in, inherited that because, because it's, 
pastors, theologians, etc., that we respected, but we didn't hear what the church fathers taught. We, we never heard it. But when I heard it, it just resonated in my heart. And I told Barb that, I said, the, the beautiful part of this is I don't have to make things up anymore. Where I didn't have to make scriptures fit, I go, they all fit now. Mm. They all fit now. And he's good and nothing but good, and we can trust him. And it's healed my heart tremendously, and I've seen a lot of you guys, your heart starts to heal up, and everything else follows, doesn't it? Even some bodies. Even some bodies, which, yeah, you've seen a lot of the physical healings and all the kinds of things, and we're not trying. That's what I was trying to share with Brad. And, and, and you know, we, we grieve for the ones that aren't healed yet, but at, somehow in the back of our minds, we can take the pressure off ourselves to have enough faith to be healed and all these different things and just trust them. Because you know, what's the worst that could happen? You fall into the hands of perfect love. And somehow when that happens, it, it just feels like our heart heals up and we can, it's okay wherever we're at right now because He makes all things work together for good. All things. So anyway, I honestly have learned probably more from you than anybody in the last year. And I just say thank you for me. And uh, I think it's, it's pouring out on a lot of you guys too what these guys teach. Amen? Amen. So we love and appreciate you and uh, you're always welcome.